I'm Alexander Clark, and I'm the founder and chief executive officer of Technolutions, and we're the folks behind Slate. Welcome to the Alp. Welcome to the Alp, the Admissions Leadership Podcast, a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who have been climbing the leadership mountain in college admissions. Some are nearing the summit, some are already there, but how did they get there? And what can other climbers learn from their mindsets, habits, and experiences? I'm your host, Ken Anselment, VP for Enrollment at Lawrence University and the Dan Saraceno Chair of Enrollment Management for RHB. And with me today is... I can't believe I'm saying this, Alexander Clark, who is somewhere on this mountain. Alexander, welcome to the Alp. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. It's good. I, it was fun catching up with you in, in Seattle, and uh, you uh, graciously met me in the uh, the Slatrium, I think it was being called. <laughs> um, I came up, and I think you were... Now, the wardrobe choice was fun. I think you had a suit on, right? And maybe white Birkenstocks, no socks. <laughs> it was a good... It was it was a good moment to approach you and say, "Hey, how'd you like to be on the Alp?" And you, without even a second of thought, just said, "Sure, sounds like fun." So, thank you. Well, when I figure when you're out in the Pacific Northwest, talking about mountains is appropriate. Oh, nicely done. Let's just do the metaphor for the whole show. <laughs> just back, just do some metaphor tennis. Um, full disclosure: I am uh, I am drinking my water out of a fancy blue uh, slate bottle. Uh, which you may or may not be familiar with, Alexander, I think. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. It's exciting to have you here. I have been in your orbit for a very long time. Um, in fact, you were kind enough to welcome me to the mothership. When was that, Alexander? I don't even remember. It was right, was it right after your your first was born? <laughs> Quite possibly. Uh, yeah. It's, it's been some time. I find that not only is it hard to tell time uh, with <laughs> children and just the passage of it, uh, but particularly even just with working with so many different institutions that it's, or were they a decade ago? Were they one year ago? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I suppose that's not fair because what are you up to right now? How many schools are part of the family? Uh, well, so we add about 200 colleges per year. Uh, and so that brings us to, to, as of today's count, it's uh, 1,471. Okay. And I know you also have foundations that are starting, that are using the service and, and all sorts of other organizations. And um, it's been really exciting. And some of the work I get to do with my friends at RHB, I, I, I see, especially with the Slate team, you know, with Alex Williams and the folks that are on the implementation side, just how many organizations they are working with to help them make the most of this gift that you've given <laughs> given the world. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's, I, I've admittedly been rather surprised at how many organizations exist <laughs> I, that I think when I was originally, you know, talking about Slate oh, 15 years ago and uh, what I thought the potential total quote market size was, I was thinking, well, you know, well, maybe it'd be 100 or 200 something colleges <laughs> uh, that's there. And yeah, that was some time ago. So uh, maybe that's a place to start. 1,471 colleges and counting. Beyond your wildest dreams, where does this register? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, I, I haven't, I'm not necessarily someone who thinks 
okay, I want to hit this particular target at a, a given moment. I actually never set targets really out there at all. Uh, and so everything is always a pleasant surprise uh, to <laughs> That's me. That's a good way to uh, go but about su- it. But, but suffice it to say, if you had asked me 15 years ago how many colleges there were in the country, I'm not sure that I would have guessed a number north of even the colleges we're working with today. Oh, wow. Okay. At what point... Did you, and and maybe let's go back to the beginning, because this almost in some ways, at the risk of sounding totally obsequious, and let me check, hold on a second, I got to check that word off the list. (laughs) Use $10 word. Well, your SAT words, you might (laughs) if you can still say that. (laughs) Um, uh, We'll scrub that part out. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, (laughs) maybe. Um, No, but. You know, every every hero story has an origin. We like to do that in the Marvel universe or the DC universe. We'll call this the admissions universe. But I'm really interested in kind of going back to the beginning when, you know, your inspiration that led to this journey that you have been on and you have now taken so many others along with you. But do you remember when this started? <laughs> yes, uh, I think it's so... I would trace the the real roots of Slate and Technolutions to fifth grade uh, for me, okay. uh, which is pre-Technolutions being founded. I had founded Technolutions when I was in seventh grade. Sure, uh, but I mean, you wanted to wait until... You sure, wanted to wait exactly, until the, the ripe 12. old age, right? Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I, I, I was. I think I might have actually just turned 13, but, uh, but roughly. And I... Actually, no, I'm sorry. I was 12. <laughs> I, I would turn 13 later that year. Uh, and one of the, but so in fifth grade, I had started a computer club uh, at my middle school. And, and where was this? Uh, so this was in Jackson, Mississippi, okay. technically Ridgeland, uh, yeah. but Jackson, Mississippi, St. Andrews Episcopal School, there the seed code at 251424, uh, <laughs> precarious minds. <laughs> uh, that's how there. It's always good to remember that. And uh, the sort of early sort of products, if you could call it that, things weren't necessarily being sold, although maybe sold as fundraisers, as I had done a sort of computer dating service uh, as a fundraiser for the computer club where it was you know, compatibility matchmaking for fifth graders, sixth graders, seventh graders, and eighth graders. It's like, why not, right? Sure. Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, also it's kind of cool as a fifth grader to literally have everyone's personality data. <laughs> wow. Uh, and and uh, kids hadn't really uh, even figured out, like, is privacy a thing I should be thinking about? Or Well, so and uh, the, the results were sold to them for 50 cents, I think, or maybe a dollar. Oh, uh, nice. If you wanted to see where you ranked on their their particular list and all as a fundraiser for this uh, student organization. Uh, but I cite that as the sort of first genesis uh, of mm. things because it was that sort of when it came to building software, I always would look sort of at what was right around me. Uh, what was the environment in which I was operating? And so when it came time, I was doing enough consulting work uh, by seventh grade, and I thought, uh, okay, this is the time to build a a proper sort of organization around the work that I was doing. And so I incorporated, I founded and incorporated Technolutions, same name uh, back then. And that was sort of the the vehicle and container for uh, all of the, the different types of software that I would be creating, which initially were things like a student information system uh, to manage attendance records and grades and sort of also kind of an early LMS 
uh, for my middle school and then high school uh, and then for other area schools with that. Uh, And so it was, yeah. Was somebody, did you have someone in your corner who was saying, hey, Alexander, you're you know, 12 years old now, you should probably think about incorporating this as a business. Did, did this come to you on your own? How, like, what was it you saw? You said you mentioned the environment that you're in. How, how did that play into it? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my father, now retired, uh, was a business litigation attorney. And so I, he wasn't advising me to go and incorporate, but I think I heard him speak enough about these types sure. of things that it was sort of the world that I knew that I was aware of the fact that you should trademark a name and that you should uh, sort of file your papers for incorporation and uh, that there's some of these standard things that you do that it felt just perfectly normal uh, to me. And then the middle school and high school were just incredibly supportive of anything that I might seek to do. And I think it kind of went in both directions uh, as well, because they would say, okay, it would be great if we had tools and software to do X or Y or Z. And I I was called upon to help with those types of things, or I'd suggest something uh, to them. And they embraced it very much with open arms. And so is it fair to say this is client number one? Uh, yes. Uh, although initially I didn't charge uh, uh, them for anything okay. uh, with that, that I I wanted to let this be just a, a fun little personal endeavor. I didn't feel as though a business necessarily had to, to make money on absolutely every relationship uh, that exists out there because I had enough other paying clients at the time, uh, too, that to sustain the life of a seventh grader uh, didn't require as, you might, as much <laughs> sure. as you might expect. <laughs> sure, sure. So you said other paying clients. There were, were there other schools that were already starting to use this or what was the, what was the use? Oh, I was doing consulting for law firms. I was doing oh. consulting for real estate investment trusts. It was a variety of different organizations. And this was in middle school and high school? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then at that point, what did you think? Did you start to envision your trajectory? Like you were going to, well, I don't want to put words into your mouth. What, what was your vision at that point? If I may impose that kind of a question. Sure. No, it's a fair question. I, at the time, sort of in middle school and high school, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to still have a good balance of life and also just to me, building software and technology was an absolute delight. It was, it was playtime for me. And so professional life and play life uh, were very interconnected. But it's funny, when I was then uh, going off to college uh, and coming into Yale as a, a first-year student, I very much did not want to do any type of business. Uh, I was somewhat anti-entrepreneurial <laughs> a little okay. bit okay. Uh, in that I thought college is a time to be a student, to have fun, to not operate a business, to not go and try to start a business. Uh, and so I, I didn't want to be thinking about technologies. I thought, okay, I'm just going to put this on hiatus. Uh, it's time to be a college student. And it was about three weeks into being a first year student that I started a student technology organization uh-huh. uh, called Yale Station. Uh, so the hiatus nest perhaps didn't last particularly long. So uh, did, it, was, <laughs> did it find you or did you find I'm, I'm picturing like Al Pacino playing you and like, they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> like, 
Well, so it's this Yale station. It was designed to be a portal for the the Yale mm. student community. So okay. it ran everything from the elections for student government to showing dining hall menus to because portals didn't really exist back then and people didn't have smartphones. And so this could be a centralized location for all of these things. Uh, and so one of the things that then started sort of bringing about Slate very early on was that year where I, as one of the Yale Station projects, I wanted to see, okay, having been from Mississippi, I'd come to the fall or the spring recruitment weekend uh, that they had had. But I had classmates uh, and friends at other schools that had similarly been admitted to Yale that weren't coming because it was it was far. It was yeah. uh, a challenge to, to get to. Thinking, well, it would have been nice if there had been at least an online supplement uh, to the, the in-person experience. And so started volunteering with the undergrad admissions office at Yale. And uh, initially on the sort of virtual bulldog days uh, component. And that's where sort of the, the initial sort of higher ed focus really began. This episode is sponsored by RHB. You've been hearing me introduce myself for a while now, not only as the VP for Enrollment at Lawrence University, but also the Dan Saraceno Chair of Enrollment Management at RHB. And you may be wondering, curious listener that you are, what that RHB gig is all about. So for context, I'll tell you that the folks at RHB are a group of really smart and creative and thoughtful and hardworking and honestly fun collaborators who form a marketing and design consultancy that helps higher ed clients succeed. Whether it's with prospective applicants to your institution, your currently enrolled students, or your alumni. It's a comprehensive approach to life cycle management that helps you ensure coherence between what you deliver and what you say you deliver to your key constituents. Me? Well, think of me like an adjunct faculty member who not only advises RHB on the particular challenges facing us on the higher ed side, but also helps higher ed clients better understand themselves through a variety of diagnostic and planning and workshop engagements related to leadership in higher ed, be it about enrollment or communications or budgeting, planning, working with trustees, and any of the other things that may come our way. So if you want to learn more about RHB, as well as why I am particularly moved by their calling this the Dan Saraceno Chair for Enrollment Management, honestly, Dan is a legend and just a wonderful human, well, please visit rhb.com slash alp. That's rhb.com slash alp. Now back to the show. You, when you're doing this work with the admissions office, um, this was, again, was this just kind of a one-off or did this reignite a, a sort of a, a broader vision for what this tool might be? I, I mean, I know some of the folks, I think about how, for example, my, my own institution became a client. I think we were in the first 100 back in the day, but we were asking uh, Nondorf's crew at University of Chicago, and I know he was with you at Yale at the time, Right. Uh, he was indeed, yes. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, I was name dropping my own institution. Um, <laughs> but b- back then, did, did you, was the vision expanding or was this a kind of a one-off for Yale? What, where, where were we? 
Well, it began very much as a, a one-off where yeah. it was a virtual bulldog days. And yeah. then uh, almost immediately it morphed into, well, wouldn't it also be great if we had a tool that could be used to send mass emails? Because what they were doing at the time is BCCing things, I think, to the tune of 150 email addresses at a time, uh, and then BCCing those out. And then it morphed into visit scheduling, uh, because wouldn't it be great uh, if students, instead of needing to call the front desk at the admissions office, could go online and uh, sort of complete this process. And so it was these little types of things, but purely as a volunteering uh, capacity that's there. I wasn't charging them a a penny uh, on things. And one of the early things, too, was in 2001, where Yale became the first college uh, in the the, the world to release admissions decisions online. Uh, And that was through, it wasn't even called Slate yet, uh, at that point, but through this this system uh, to be able to release this online. It did not have a name. Uh, okay. In fact, it didn't even get a name until, oh, probably 2006 or so. Okay. okay. Where, where did it go from there? I mean, so uh, this was in your first year when you're doing this? Uh, yes. All of this expansion was in the first year? Uh, first to second year. So first to second first year. year into sophomore year. Yeah. So back to the question I had started to ask before. How did it start to spread? How did it start to spread? And then I'm also interested in, at some point, you had to probably start scaling up yourself too. Yeah, so the the initial bits were, I'm not sure I was necessarily even aware that it was spreading. It just became mm. more that I was doing with the undergrad admissions office. And fun things, but they were they were fun additional projects alongside Yale Station, alongside classes, alongside everything else that I still would say at that point, it wasn't under the official banner of Technolutions. I didn't see this as a product. I didn't see this as a, a business. Hmm. It wasn't until I was sort of starting to near graduation my senior year uh, that my father kept asking, okay, so when are you going to be going on interviews for jobs. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Sounds like a dad I know. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, and so I, I started thinking, okay, well, no, fine. You know, it is an appropriate time to start planning sort of what the, at least the next year uh, of my life perhaps looks like. And I thought if I'm going to take a swing at the, the quote, entrepreneurial thing, it's better to do it when I'm young and I could mm. go back to eating hypothetical ramen. So if you, you fall flat on your face, the, <laughs> sure. the, the, the distance isn't quite as far uh, as later in life. And and so I thought, okay, well, this is a good time. But I've always been, well, I don't know if I, other folks might not describe me as risk averse, but I think I describe myself as risk averse sure. uh, that way in that I always want to try to guarantee the best possible outcome where possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so prior to graduating, I, I reached out to the folks in the undergrad admissions office to say, okay, all the stuff we've been doing for free on a volunteering arrangement, what if we formalized this? And we made this now into more of a consulting real relationship. Uh, and they were, of course, very much 
uh, on board with that. And then there was someone who works in the undergrad admissions office whose children were playing on the playground with the then director of admissions for the Yale School of Management. And they were talking about how they were getting ready to ditch their Embark application and wanting to look at things. So this person who's working in undergrad admissions is talking to the director of admissions at SOM and mentions that, hey, we're working with this kid, Alexander Clark, and perhaps you should have a conversation. And so prior to graduating, uh, both Yale College and Yale OSOM uh, had signed on as the inaugural clients uh, for this sort of newly minted system that could help manage their applications and admissions processes. And, and at that point, did, <laughs> I, 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 may, I sound like I'm probably a broken record in the way I'm, I'm asking the question, because again, we know, I don't know if we know how it ends, but at least we know where we are today. Were you thinking, okay, that's a great start, or this, this sounds good? Or were you thinking that maybe there would, this could be a launching point for something else? Something oh, I thought bigger. this is this is a great start, uh, and I also was hedging my bets. I had several other products yeah. as well uh, yeah. in two thousand four. I had something okay. called Flyerboard, which was a digital signage technology with touch screens that was just ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I laughed when I saw a company at NACAC a couple of years ago that was Flyerboard, and it was being really almost marketed as this you know brand new thing. And I'm thinking. Hey, I was doing that 15 years ago. <laughs> Did uh, you walk over into their space and just kind of wink at them and say no? Uh, well, no. Uh, I actually, someone had brought me over uh, to it saying, you know, you've got to see this. It's the most amazing thing. And I, I had to contain my my smile uh, uh, that's there. But yeah, no, there were several things because I wasn't sure necessarily what was going to have resonance. And it was a good way to help. Uh, you know, pay some initial bills to have a a few different types of things that were out there. But I I think that I knew something was that there was really strong potential uh, by maybe 2005, 2006, where it grew from just those two initial Yale colleges to other professional schools uh, at Yale, the the music school, the divinity school, the art school, the architecture school. Uh, And Yale had a lot of these little fiefdoms uh, Mm -hmm. that were out there. And then someone left uh, Yale and took Slate, now it had the name, uh, where they were going. Someone left that school and took Slate where they were going. Uh, And all of a sudden, it went from four schools to eight schools and eight schools to 12 schools. And it, it felt like, wow, this is, there is something here. That's the kind of community spread we can all get behind. Right? <laughs> exactly. We, and and I, I, want, I imagine just the organic nature of it is, is part of its charm too. I mean, there's, there's this humanness to the entire process. I remember how I learned about it myself. I was in line. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, Alexander, but I was in line at a Starbucks in Minneapolis waiting for coffee with my friend Tom Weed, who has, has since passed away, but um, we were we were both waiting in line for our coffee, and I had mentioned something about how I was about to sign a contract with a another uh, entity that was going to run our CRM, and he said, "You know, before you sign anything, do yourself a favor. Um, we just saw a pitch from these guys at Technolutions because um, it was I, I think it was right in the wake of Recruitment Plus." 
starting to go away. Um, and he said, just give him a, give him a look. And I remember running back. I was at John Lawler, up at the Lawler seminar, summer <laughs> seminar. And, uh, I, I, I don't think I paid attention to the next couple of sessions because I just started reading everything that it looked like it could do. And then I called you or I, I reached out to Technolutions like that week I got back and you're the person I ended up talking to and you walked us through the whole demo. I think my story is a story that a lot of people could repeat along the way. This I, I still remember sitting in my office. There were three of us huddled around my screen and you were talking to us. And I remember, um, you know, kind of walking up to this and I'm writing down on my piece of paper, how much I think this is going to cost. And I think <laughs> by the time you had started talking about all of the, the features, uh, I think I had like $1 million written down. <laughs> and, and then you told us what it was. And I, I, I literally fell out of my chair, but I also remember this, sending the contract over to our legal counsel. And I think I shared this with you at the time, even though my, the lawyer told me I shouldn't. He said, uh, don't share this with uh, them, but this is the most client-friendly contract <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. Um, and we were, we were all in at that point. And that was 2012, I think, 2011. Um, but just from the start, it has been this human-centered, wonderful experience that when I say it's the kind of community spread I can get behind, I can see why there are so many people that have rallied around it and rallied around you. Um, wow, that was, long, that was a long, that was a long walk <laughs> through the, <laughs> through our story. No, it's, uh, no it, it's, it's, it's always wonderful to hear stories like that because it's, it was, both intentional and unintentional sort of at the same time. I, I would love to say, you know, that this, that I had this grand vision that it needs to be community centric and this is how to, to do it. But it's more that I, I thought that, well, let me sort of rephrase this. I saw very early on that colleges would talk to other colleges mm -hmm. and they would talk to one another about the things they didn't like in a particular tool. They would mm -hmm. talk to other colleges about the organizations they they weren't having good experiences with. And so uh -huh. I found it peculiar that there were these other organizations that would invest all of their resources into hiring sales staff to yeah. try to convince people of something when the organizations that they're bringing on are then going to all walk around at college fairs and other events uh, chatting about everything good and bad. Mm -hmm. And if you were to instead invest into giving them something good to talk about, you don't need sales staff. Uh, and to this day, we still have no sales that's, staff whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. that's... You, you say that college people talk to each other. It's it's interesting. We we do, um, and it's strange that a place in an environment where so many people are in direct competition to each other, and I think it speaks to the quality of what you've developed. That we're willing to at this point, it's you know it's it's a foregone conclusion. But in those early days, people were more willing to share what could be a a, a serious competitive advantage with competitors because they could see that it was going to make their lives better. Um, which is interesting because, you know, there, there we'll be collegial to a point, but when it comes to the stuff where we think we might be able to get a market advantage, we may be a little less forthcoming, but I, we never saw that with this. It was just a, this is good for all of us. Yeah, no, it was a, it was very happy to see that people had so much enthusiasm, uh, that they, they were sort of 
bounding uh, uh, with sort of excitement about a technology tool. It was never lost on me that uh, to have uh, acolytes out there that could be very excited about a software (laughs) uh, tool, Uh, you know, the the height of nerddom that is is there, but that this was really a, a wonderful type of community of just individuals where they can geek out about things together mm-hmm. uh, and they they indeed do well and it's spawned a whole new sector of the higher ed uh, ecosystem you, you now have slate captains and there are uh, plenty of businesses out there that are preferred uh, partners that help people optimize their own instance and, and like when you think about all all of the things that it has created beyond the technology itself in terms of skill sets that admission offices are looking for and thinking about the possibilities of how to serve students has been just remarkable to witness over the last decade. Yeah, I I think it comes down to a few things that were very much intentional uh, on our part, but also perhaps where I'm not sure that we saw necessarily where all of this would would go at the beginning either, Uh, but one is user empowerment. uh, And that I've always been a firm believer that each individual person who's touching this should be able to really be able to express their their creativity in full control. And they should never have to come to us for Mm. anything, that anything that we should, that we can do, they should be able to do. And so it creates this wonderful sort of uh, way of trying to design a, a system so that non-technical users can do really incredible, incredibly powerful things. And so I think some organizations, they they believe that they should sort of the, org, the vendor itself, uh, uh, and I never see us as a vendor, uh, but other organizations might be a little more sort of traditional vendors, but where the vendor is the one that needs to provide the the, the service. They need to really uh, do these things. And for us, we can be really good at software. And that's what we can focus on and really let the the process piece, the creativity Mm -hmm. of what their specific implementation of that's going to be. Well, of course, that should be the people who are closest to it. And so I think that's one piece. The other piece is that uh, to know kind of like not just what you're sort of good at and not good at, uh, but to not feel like you have to do it all. Uh, Mm, And to recognize that we can be really good in the higher ed ecosystem by focusing on the things that we do well, but that we don't have to provide marketing services, that we're not a creative shop. We can be creative people, but that's not what we do. We're not the enrollment marketing strategy folks. They're better organizations that that can do that. And so to be very sort of clear and specific about sort of and non-competitive <laughs> with all these organizations mm-hmm. to give them space. Uh, and what's been beautiful to see is that organizations have embraced that, that now there are all of these preferred partners. I mean, there, there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them now. Uh, and it's allowed us where we have a staff size at Technolutions of about, it's a little shy of 75 uh, okay. uh, uh, folks right now. But there are hundreds and hundreds of folks at preferred partners that are now, you know, full-time slate uh, gurus right. uh, that are out there and, you know, thousands and thousands of people at these colleges in these slate captains roles and Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of just general users that are out there that allows us to really sort of punch above 
our our weight and achieve so much more that that would have only been possible if we had an organization size of, you know, thousands of employees. Yeah. How does it feel? It's just, how, how does it feel to be kind of at the center of that particular universe? I mean, just playing out those concentric circles that you just illustrated for us all the way to the first year counselor who logs on to slate for the first time, but knowing the extent of what you have wrought Oh, it's incredibly cool. I, 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 I yes, I, 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 and I've been surprised at how much I've enjoyed that too, uh, mm-hmm. because it wasn't that wasn't ever part of the the plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been a happy surprise along the way, uh, but to also recognize that with that comes a tremendous amount of responsibility. Absolutely, uh, that you have to be incredibly fair and to everyone, uh, whether they are sort of other organizations in the ecosystem or clients, that you can't take advantage of a, a situation. And I think one of the, the sort of best testaments or evidence of this is the fact that literally in our entire history, we have never once increased the cost of Slate to any client ever. That's incredible. Uh, and, thank you, by the yeah, way. Exactly. <laughs> of all of us, thank you for that. Right. But these sorts of things that, you know, nearly every organization on planet Earth has year over year cost increases, mm-hmm. certainly over a two decade period of time, they would have had something. Uh, and and we've never done that because we haven't needed to. Uh, mm. And I would say that our motivations have always been sort of more than than money. Money has not been a driving force for us ever on anything. So we don't have to worry about somebody trying to buy you out then, right? <laughs> no, you know, it's it, it's interesting. One of the, I, I've gone through phases, right? Where mm-hmm. I, I, I had said for many, many, many years that I would absolutely never sell the company as it's 100% shareholder. I would never take outside investment. And uh, that was actually a core value that would appear on Summit Mm -hmm. Slides uh, Mm -hmm. at our Mm -hmm. user group conference every year. Uh, There are, I think, four core values. There's something empowering and innovating and exciting and amazing and basically staying independent uh, was the the point. Uh, And then it was a number of years ago where... Uh, we were we were growing and maybe we were around 50 employees or something and going through growing pains and there were there were days and sometimes weeks where it it started feeling like geez we're becoming a little more corporate is this still fun is this mm-hmm. still uh, where sort of I can be most useful uh, or even just as we're sort of scaling up uh, on these things can can we still be the ones to, to do that? Uh, and, hmm. and so I had actually dropped it off some of the summit slides uh, <laughs> that I took off silently <laughs> that, yeah. for the last uh, stay independent one. I will point out that it was immediately noticed there was a tweet. I would out. think so. Yeah. Conspicuously <laughs> absent. Like, Why is this missing? <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, they noticed. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, I, on this. And, but I, I, not that I was having any sort of serious thoughts about that, but I wanted to make sure that I was understanding sort of what is the way to continue to provide a really sort of 
compelling service to a growing number of clients that is sort of shepherding it uh, through the, the vehicle of technologies. Was that going to be forever that the pathway that schools could be sort of most successful uh, right. with? So there was actually, there was very much a period of time uh, in there where I was questioning uh, some of the, uh, just some of the, the, the growth that we were, we were having on things because it, it started making the organization feel uh, a little bit different. Uh, and it wasn't until actually the, the pandemic, I, I think you hear a lot of people talk about their various pandemic epiphanies yeah. uh, that they have with things. Uh, and it was a pandemic epiphany for me to realize that it's, <laughs> that not only had it been, you know, two decades of uh, not entertaining any offers to, to sell the organization or any part of it, uh, but that if I had any sort of complaints about, uh, you know, whether it's growing bureaucracies within an organization or people management or, or even just that the nature of uh, what the work might look like, that it's not that sort of just going and passing this off changes any of that. It, anything, it just accentuates more of that, that this is an opportunity to really continue to redefine what it means to be a, a larger technology or growing technology organization uh, and to buck a lot of just the, the status quo that's that's out there. Uh, and so I feel as though we are very much in a, a place today that we get to, we've doubled down on all of the, the fun, cool, quirky things to say, no, this is how we're going to operate. We're not going to look and feel like all of the other organizations that may be out there because that's just not us. And yeah. if it means, you know, we, we don't, we can't have the same potential, you know, if then if we were to be a part of some, you know, 2000 person company, that's okay. Uh, because I think we'll have the better potential in our own unique way. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your, your team actually. So you, you've been referring a lot to the, we now, so, you know, well, it's a question I often ask leaders on, on this podcast, which is how do you take care of the folks that work with you or work for you? Um, the family, so to speak. Yeah. Something that it, it, the answer would be different for, for different times. Sure. Uh, but what I would say, perhaps a, a more recent thing sort of coming out of a, a, a pandemic with this and pandemic epiphanies and uh, of how, what we want to be as an organization going forward. What I realized uh, was the the greatest source of frustration that employees within the organization might have, and I might have with them sort of by extension, Sure, uh, was that we had too much what I would call transactional work that mm. had become a part of certain types of job roles and responsibilities, uh, and not enough of the, the transformational. Uh, and I would characterize as the transactional is the stuff that you can do on your own. You can do working remotely. You can uh, do in a very distributed, scalable type of way, but it doesn't necessarily give folks a tremendous amount of passion about that. 
Yeah. And as we were bringing folks back to the the office, that we we sort of bucked the trend uh, on this one too, and we began bringing back uh, most of our employees. So it was about the majority uh, started returning uh, in September of last year. Oh wow! Uh, to the office, uh, at least on a, a part time yeah. uh, basis, and we had one hundred percent of employees back in June of this year. Uh, with uh, or June, July for our Portland office, uh, just slightly different timetable uh, for them. But as we were, as I was sort of being met with some some resistance uh, from some folks uh, mm-hmm. about the the return to the office, and I kept finding myself needing to uh, extol the virtues of what it means to be together. And I kept hearing from some folks that, well, oh, but I can do my job remotely. Uh, and I kind of kept thinking oh, but you're doing the part of the job that I don't want to exist in the first place. <laughs> uh, that's the, the type of stuff when you are when you don't need to be around others, when you don't need to be sharing information, where you don't need to be having spontaneous creativity and water cooler conversation. That that to me was where the best work uh, happens is when it doesn't have, you know, a meeting invite uh, around it. Uh, and... And so that's when we embarked upon this this notion of, okay, now we're going to eliminate transactional work from the organization. Uh, And we can do this because we have a stronger ecosystem now. We can do this Hmm. because we have better technology. And so what we've done is uh, we've said, okay, we're going to uh, embark upon this, this path where uh, we had already eliminated a lot of types of transactional work. Let's get rid of all of it. Uh, we, we can do this, and I, I think we can be very successful at, at doing this. And to show that this opens up new types of possibilities and opportunities, in August we instituted uh, something that had come to me in a dream, uh, like literally in okay. a dream, okay, uh, and had been percolating through thoughts in different ways. But I had been listening to the Bruce Hornsby album, uh, Halcyon Days, okay, and great album, <laughs> love it, <laughs> and uh, big fan of Bruce Hornsby too. And I thought, I think that because I'd read an article recently about how. Oh, it was uh, maybe an Eastern European or Swedish country or something that was going to a four-day work week. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the fine print was they were going to over those four days. They would still have. Uh, they were reducing their hours to thirty-five hours a week, and I'm like, well, that's what we already had. <laughs> it was right. a thirty-five-hour week for uh, all employees, uh, just spread over five days. Uh, and so I thought, okay, really? you know what? Maybe works better than work from home because I'm. I really am a firm believer that people, that we in our roles at Technolutions can be our best when we're around one another. That mm-hmm. it's not that sometimes you can be at home and sometimes you're not. No, what to me works a little bit better than the hybrid models of you've got two days a week, uh, say in the office, three days a week at home. That maybe means that someone only has one day of potential overlap. Right, uh, right. Someone. That's not enough for real relationships. Uh, and so what we what we did was we said, okay, everyone gets a halcyon day every single week, which is a day that you can go and you could work from home, you could work from the beach, you could not work at all. Uh, you could just do whatever the heck you want. 
Uh, you're smart, professional people. Uh, you don't have to tell us about it ahead of time. You just, it could be a different day, any given day. Just use your own judgment uh, hmm. on this. And so every single week, it's not like it's a bank where you've got these because we still have PTO and vacation and sick days and holidays and sure. uh, everything else. But now there are 52 of these a year, uh, one every week, where hmm. you could say, oh, man, it's gorgeous outside. I want to go uh, hike a, a mountain. And I actually did that uh, a couple of weeks ago. My kids had a half day at school. I thought, oh, it looks beautiful. I don't have any meetings scheduled for the day. I'm just going to go and take a halcyon day. And it has been one of the most wonderful things, yeah. not just for me, uh, but for, I think, the, the mental health of sort of everyone that sometimes you you just want to have a little bit of a breather. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I I started leaning in really carefully to listen. I have headphones on. It's not like I need to get closer to the speaker, but thinking like, how how could this, where is this going? How can this work? And did, <laughs> was it, can I do it at my own institution? Um, it gets a little harder, I think, probably in a in a college setting. But that kind of thinking is is something we're all wrestling with right now, right? The 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 notion of coming back to campus, we're student facing in in many cases, but there are still some there is some value in being able to get away and focus on some of the work you need to do. And I, I love this free play idea, this halcyon day. And was how was this met by the team? Well, initially with, so, so some folks got it immediately. Yeah. Like uh, the logistics seem like something people would want to know. Well, how exactly does this work and how do we yes, ensure that? Yes, and yeah. <laughs> yes. And yes, some folks really wanted it to be spelled out to them, sort of, well, what are the rules around this? And I was like, yeah, exactly. there are no rules. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, but like, do I need to check in? And I'm like, don't check in. Okay. But like, do I need to be checking email? I'm like, if you want to. Well, does that mean I should? And I'm like, it, it depends, you know, do what you right. think. Uh, and that it's purposefully uh, without guidelines, uh, because that's what's freeing and liberating about that type of a, a concept there. And what we found is that in practice now, several months into this grand little experiment, uh, is that it's had absolutely no hit on productivity uh, whatsoever, because there are some days where maybe you're just not going to be that productive anyway. Uh, right. And and if you honor that and you just kind of wave your own little personal white flag and just say, no, nah, today is a day for a three martini lunch uh, and I'm going to <laughs> enjoy that. Uh, your other days are just way more awesome. Uh, and And honestly, when you start moving more types of work, out of transactional and into transformational, then the, the notion of time gets way fuzzier uh, on things too, because ideally you're coming up with ideas in your dreams <laughs> and that will influence uh, every bit of work that you do from that point forward. Yeah. Before we move on from this and, and um, get to the rapid descent, I, could you give an example of maybe a transactional piece and a transformational piece, just for people who may not live in that sort of environment, but to help frame that out. Because it might help listeners and certainly it might help me think like, okay, how can I apply this to my own my own environment? Sure. So what, when you're looking for things to eliminate, what are those sort of things? 
Sure. So I would characterize transactional and eliminatable uh, items as something that is repeatable. So okay. uh, there might be something like a support inquiry from a college. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that might come in. And we don't necessarily need to take that just as a, a given that a support inquiry comes in and we need to respond with the answer. A transactional way to approach this is you respond with the answer and you scale up by hiring more people and mm-hmm. uh, fine. Transformational looks at it and says, okay, let's eliminate the fact that this came in in the first place. And yeah. we need either better documentation. We need to rethink how the tool works. We need to uh, develop further an ecosystem of uh, sort of other opportunities uh, to do this. Mm-hmm. And what you wind up with is something where for most of the type of work that you can be doing, it shouldn't be repeatable uh, because that is a perfect yeah. candidate for automation or better yes. systems or controls. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. That's perfect. I'm looking at the time and realizing, I, you know, I could spend all afternoon with you, but you have a massive enterprise. To, or is this a halcyon day? I should probably <laughs> ask you that. Is this a... Uh, today is not a halcyon day. <laughs> okay, well uh, then let's uh, let's let's see if let's see if we can end on a wonderful note. Alexander, thanks for sharing all of this. This has been this has been really good. I, I, I do want to ask this one question, um, one other question, um, which is the uh, were there any were there moments where you wondered whether you actually had what it took to do this? I often ask people that, and these moments of doubt or questioning whether you had the right stuff. You know, I, I'm thinking as a seventh grader who was running a business, maybe there were these moments where, no, there's never any doubt, but I want to give some space to that just in case. Sure. No, I I absolutely have doubted uh, how great a challenge something might might be. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've wondered, mm-hmm. okay, this is potentially, this seems a little big and a little scary sometimes uh, that's there, but I've found that I'm always willing to rise to the challenge, that if uh, the challenge is something that you can be passionate about in the the first place, that allows you to overcome it. And that those occasions where I found myself questioning something and wondering, all right, do I have the motivation to to ascend that? That also was a sort of clue for me that if I was finding that I didn't have the motivation, maybe that's not a challenge that I should actually be taking on in the first place. That's great advice. Great advice. Thank you. All right. Speaking of challenges, are you ready for the rapid descent, Alexander? Sure. <laughs> All right, here we go. So eight quick questions. This is probably, everybody wants to know the answers, but I think they're going to know the answer to question number one, which is what is your walkout song? Because I think all of us have seen it. Yeah, so it's, uh, everyone would guess it's something by Daft Punk, and indeed mm-hmm. it is. Uh, I have a lot of different ones that I like. My favorite album of theirs is an album called Discovery. Uh, we even named a feature for it in, uh, in Slate uh, for that. Uh, but the song is Voyager. Uh, and this okay. was our on-hold music for many years, too. Oh, perfect. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that there was some sadness in, in your environment when Daft Punk uh, uh, ceased and desisted as an organization. <laughs> You know, everyone thought I would have been upset about that, oh. <laughs> uh, except for so many years. I was only playing basically two or three of their albums at our summits, <laughs> uh, which were their older albums. Their new music was too poppy for me. <laughs> so I, okay. I'm good. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, what's the best thing you've read lately? 
Ah, there's, uh, speaking of uh, remote work, uh, I, I do actually like to read research studies and like the whole research papers written by academics. And there was a fascinating one by Microsoft on just all of the effects of remote work, the, the toll the pandemic had taken mm. on their 60,000 some uh, employees. And the, you know, the spoiler of, uh, of it is that uh, what they found is that, yes, people got the, quote, transactional work uh, done and they communicated with their team, but teams did not communicate with other teams at all. That fell yeah. off precipitously uh, uh, during the, the sort of remote work uh, environment. And a lot of that collaboration got lost. And uh, words that uh, uh, certainly have resonated with how I've been uh, approaching uh, sort of our organization. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have anything up next in your to read list? Uh, yes, actually, there's uh, uh, at NACAC in Seattle. Uh, there were a couple of uh, uh, books that were recommended to me uh, uh, by uh, someone with another vendor there. And I was like, this sounds really good. Uh, so one is uh, a book called uh, Finite and Infinite Games. Uh, it's not mm. a new book. It's an older uh, mm-hmm. book. Uh, and the other one is Future Shock. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and so both of those, uh, as she was describing them to me, I was like, ooh, this sounds interesting. So uh, those are next on my reading list. Got it. Thank you. Um, are, are you your podcast fan or not? <laughs> oh, I hope you don't kick me off uh, because I, I don't necessarily listen to all that many podcasts. Uh, slash or any of them. Uh, but, <laughs> but there's always... <laughs> But there's always a, a first time for things. Um, well, we'll have you listen to this one. Maybe. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay, I, I, I was going to say I do listen to the podcast that I'm on. Uh, okay. that, that probably sell, sounds too self-aggrandizing. No, 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 no. Um, you can use this as your hold music when people, yes. <laughs> when people call. Um, what's your favorite thing to make in the kitchen? Ah, so I'm I'm not a big indoor kitchen cooker, uh, but I do make really, really simple burgers for the kids on weekends on an outdoor barbecue grill, but with everything sourced from our local uh, sort of uh, like in our backyard vegetable garden. Oh, nice. Um, are you a note taker at all? Or are you one of those folks that has the, the, the brain that just stores everything that it, that, that it sees? Uh, yes and no. So okay. I, I used to take notes first year in college. Uh, and then I discovered that whenever I took notes, I stopped paying attention. Uh, to what was being said in class. And then I'd have to go back and try to read the notes to figure out what I had actually missed in class because I was taking notes. And I found that then I wouldn't actually go back and read the notes later anyway. (laughs) And so I stopped showing up to all classes uh, with, I had no pen and I had no paper and no laptop or anything like that either. And I just stopped taking notes. Uh, And I've never taken notes ever since then. And what I find is that I am then much more engaged and present in any meeting and any setting. And it's not that I remember everything, uh, but I, I figure that the things that are important, I will remember. And if I don't remember them, I figure that someone else to whom they are important will remind me of them later. And it acts as this wonderful priority filter. Hmm. Note to self. Maybe I'll take that one as advice. I like that one. Well, it, it might also come with the fine print, you know, don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It, it, it does depend on having a, 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 a collection of folks around you who may pick up what falls out of your head. <laughs> there you go. You. Um, what's a memorable bit of advice you've received? 
Ah, so it was uh, right around the time that I was founding Technolutions in seventh grade, uh, but was from a, a middle school science teacher of mine uh, that she was dispensing wisdom uh, onto me uh, and, and said, well, you know, if you're ever interested in starting a business, uh, a good way to do it is to go to a cocktail party. And I think I'm thinking you're telling this to a seventh grader. But seventh okay. grader. That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, and go to a cocktail party and listen to folks complain about their work, about whatever. Uh, and if you can come up with some solutions to the various challenges that they're, they're talking about, uh, then you've got some instant customers uh, right there and some happy uh, ones uh, too. And I, I thought that that was very sage uh, advice to be. That's, that's good. Uh, did you start applying that as a, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old? Well, my parents did bring me to cocktail parties and they're, they're friends. So <laughs> I it perhaps uh, was uh, getting imprinted upon me early on. Okay, perfect. Good. Um, were any of the original slate cocktails invented at that time or the, the um, ingredients planted? <laughs> you know, I was I was such a good kid in oh, middle I'm not school and high school. I did, I did not just... even have anything to drink until college. I, so. I'm just saying like, hmm, maybe just like the idea of the, the power of that. That's... Um... That's not even a rapid descent question, but do you have a favorite slate cocktail? Oh, um, yes. Uh, there's the one, and maybe it's just because it was the first one at our first summit that we had done, but it was a cocktail called the Opt Out. Uh, <laughs> right, right. We, we name all of our cocktails for features within slate. Uh, and it was basically a blue colored gin and tonic. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, but was really delicious, and uh, people uh, have uh, in summits since then. They have continued to ask for the opt out. For the so opt -out. every year, we we allow that to continue to be served, even if opt it's into not the, the opt signature. out. Absolutely. Good. Um, last question: uh, Name an item on your bucket list that you haven't yet checked off. Uh, so I had always thought it would be really, really fun to fly on the Concorde. Uh, this will date how long of a bucket list <laughs> item this, this was. Uh, but to fly on the Concorde uh, to Paris uh, and have dinner and follow one of those New York Times, you know, 36 hours oh, yeah. in Paris type itineraries that they do. But to do it hour for hour, minute for minute, exactly. Uh, mm. And then fly right back. Uh, and have bragging rights for oh, <laughs> weeks to follow uh, that, oh, yeah, I had a craving for French food, so I, I flew to Paris on the Concorde. <laughs> and, of course, there's no Concorde now, so I'm like, ah. Oh. Uh, but I, I think that this is still achievable at some point. I, I just may need to, I, I'd like to wait for supersonic uh, yeah. to return uh, Virgin Galactic or something like that. I know, right? you know, you it's, uh, oh, maybe yeah. if I can uh, make some uh, friends in these uh, higher places. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you could. Um, Alexander, this has been a treat uh, having you on the podcast. Thanks for, thanks for spending time and sharing the story with all of us. Absolutely. Thank you, Ken. This was a, a treat. Well, um, in the show notes, I'll provide the essential links so people can learn more. Is there a recipe for the opt-out publicly available uh, somewhere? Uh, yes, indeed. I, I can uh, email that over to you. <laughs> I, I will. I'll include a link. That'll be a. That'll be just a, a nice way to get people to visit the visit the site. Um, but uh, in, in the meantime, Alexander, may all your big dreams continue to come true, um, at least the good ones. And to you, dear listener, thanks for listening. Be well and do well. <laughs>